the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Oh, yes, indeed he is, and he's here to say good afternoon to you. Welcome to the August 30th edition of Lifeline. Let me adjust this so I can see you better. What, surprise you? Yes, we have special equipment installed in your vehicle. We can actually see everything that you're... What, 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 don't drive so fast. You can see how fast the speedometer is moving. Yeah, frightening thought. There were people at one time that actually thought you could do things like that. <laughs> today, they're called the federal government. At any rate, I digress. We've got a great show for you today. Whether we can see you, so long as you can hear us, that's the main thing. And some great guests coming up a little bit later on. Christopher Horner will join us, senior fellow with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He spent two years, in fact, almost three, combing through government documents, many of which had to be gathered through Freedom of Information Act requests and, in a few cases, through litigation. And he has made a connection between a number of leading state attorneys general and the most extreme end of the fringe climate change folks and it will knock your socks off when you find out who's in the pocket of whom and how your tax dollars are being used to essentially i don't know it's it's almost as if it's they're like guns for hire be nice if you could just tell the attorney general hey there's a neighbor down the street that i don't like just trump up some charges and get them to move out would you Uh, Too far short of that, folks. And guess what? One of those AGs might even be California's own. We'll talk about it. Christopher Horner joins us a little bit later on in the program. It, It dawned on me, looking at the calendar, we are just today a week and four days away from the 17th anniversary of 9 11, September the 11th of 2001. America, in many ways, of what little innocence it might have had left, lost it all. And sadly, in the ensuing 17 years, we've also seemingly lost many of the lessons that were first taught on 9-11. And if you look at much of the turmoil in the political arena today, if you look at all the accusations of political division you begin to see that it's not just along political lines that America may be divided, but there's also spiritual and moral lines. There has been this slowly, slow, steady decay of our Judeo-Christian ethic in this nation and those values that were used as the foundation for this great nation that have eroded in such a fashion that today anymore you almost have to dig and dig deep to find any, any remaining vestiges 
of Judeo-Christian values within our society and culture. Oh, to be sure, they are there in pockets and in corners, but nothing like what they once were. What's problematic about all of this is that this disconnect from our roots may make us as a nation even more vulnerable than we were back on September the 11th of 2001. To explain more, we're joined by best-selling author Brigitte Gabriel. She is one of leading terrorism experts in the world. She is chairman of ACT, ACT for America, the largest national security grassroots organization in the U.S. And she joins us to talk about a brand new book that's about to be released called simply Rise in Defense of Judeo-Christian Values and Freedom. And Brigitte, always great to have you on the show. Uh, Thank you, Greg. I'm delighted to be back with you. Wow, a hot topic, and uh, just in time for, as I mentioned, the uh, tragic 17th anniversary of 9-11. And do do you agree with me, the sense that seemingly the farther and farther away we get from that date, the, the memory of the tragedy and the horror and the lessons that were taught seem to grow dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, almost to the point where it's increasing our vulnerability yet once again. Do you, do you agree with that? I agree with you, Greg. We have forgotten that which we promised we would never forget. And at this point, we are not only fighting an enemy from the outside, we are also fighting an enemy from the inside. America as we know it is being transformed before our very eyes. The flag that once flew on every street corner is now considered a hate symbol on college campuses. Athletes who used to break out in tears of pride during the national anthem are now kneeling in protest. Patriotism is seen as hateful. Freedom of speech is being eliminated by the tyranny of tolerance. And police are being targeted by criminals while the mainstream media victimizes their killers. Our public schools are used to promote Islamic propaganda inside the classroom. Unvetted immigration is rampant, and Christmas is under assault. This is exactly why I wrote Rise, to light a fire under Americans to understand that our nation is at a crossroads of irreversible consequences, and the Judeo-Christian values it was founded upon are under attack from God as well as from within. Yeah, what's troubling about this, if you go back in history, even just the last 100 years, there were always pockets, there were always subsectors in American culture and within American politics where you could find samples of the extreme. There was a time when, for example, the Communist Party USA thrived very well here. There were pockets of people that were fascist and supported Mussolini or um, were uh, national socialists and supported Adolf Hitler, who also happened to be Americans at the time. Uh, We certainly saw the rise of some of the humanistic values, such as uh, the science of eugenics, uh, promoted largely by people like Margaret Sanger in the 1920s. But while there were pockets of this, and pockets of hatred too, and, you know, uh, vestiges of, of prejudice and racism, the Ku Klux Klan, to be sure, our history has been pot-marked with many of these negative symbols. And yet, 
historically and until recent times, they were always considered to be fringe extremists. They were on the outside of society attempting to look in. I think what's troubling about all of this, and you delineated inside of the pages of Rise, and that is this notion that even as you went down that laundry list a moment ago, these are cases of now fringe extremism that's gone mainstream. Exactly, exactly. And this is why we are today witnessing the mainstream media supporting the anti-fascist Antifa, who supposedly is anti-fascist. Before, the media did not come out in support of the Ku Klux Klan, for example, Greg. At least we had a sense of decency in our country and a sense of who we were as a nation. We had a foundation that everybody understood and respected. And those who were the fringe, the majority of Americans understood that they are the fringe. But today, when the Southern Poverty Law Center would identify people like me as hate groups or haters, when they would identify people uh, uh, called the president as Hitler, uh, when they are people who are demonizing people like the Family Research Council, calling them a hate group as well, when you see this, this, this labeling, the vilifying of people standing up for our values, being called xenophobe, homophobe, uh, Islamophobe, uh, racist, bigot, this, that, and the other. And we see on the other side, the leftists are extremely organized, and the media is on their side. They're organized in academia. They're organized in the media. They're organized in Hollywood. They have taken control of our public education. Uh, they are now working together with Islamic organizations. I have a chapter in the book Rise titled The Leftist Islamist Coalition, where I detail how now the leftist organization and Islamic radical organizations are together coordinating basically against the United States and its citizens. And the sad thing is that our, our sense of outrage over all of this, uh, as much as our memory of 9-11 seems to be diminishing, our sense of outrage over all of this seems to be diminishing as well. It's almost the the frog in the kettle theory that slowly as the temperature rises from cool to lukewarm to warm to slightly hot to hot to boiling to the point of death, that over that process, much like the frog in the kettle, you don't really feel the effects of it. By the time the heat begins to do significant damage to the tissues, uh, your support system um, your immune system is kicked in to such a degree uh, that you're beginning to pass out. Adrenaline is flowing. You go into shock, and eventually you die. You don't really understand that you were boiled to death because it was a slow, gradual process. And by the time you maybe even had an inkling in some corner of your conscious mind that there was something wrong, it was simply too late. And I fear that that may be describing where our culture and our society is headed, if not almost already on the precipice of being there. Brigitte Gabriel is with us today, a look at rise in defense of Judeo-Christian values and freedom. When I say, gee, we don't seem to be bothered by these things anymore, let's contrast two stories when we come back and look at the difference in the reaction between the two to help prove my point. We'll come back with more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. 515 exact, exactly what's going on traffic-wise, I don't know. Michael Bennett knows, though. Michael, what's up? 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back to our conversation, best-selling author and terrorism expert Brigitte Gabriel. Her book, by the way, is called Rise in Defense of Judeo-Christian Values and Freedom. The book is going to be released in just a couple of days, and uh, you can certainly get copies, order them in advance through Amazon.com, published by Frontline. You can also get it through um, her website, actforamerica.org. That's Act for America, the word for all spelled out, actforamerica.org. You will recall back in January of this year the story of the Turpin kids, the 13 children of David and Louise Turpin in Paris, California, essentially held captive by their parents. These kids shackled to furniture and basically put on a starvation diet, deprived of an education. When the 17-year-old daughter was able to escape through a window and contact authorities, the police mistook her for a child as young as 10 years old because she was so emaciated and starved to death. This story, tragic as it is, captured the headline news for weeks and weeks and weeks. It was on the front page of every newspaper, every magazine. Television specials talked about it. There were news stories on the website. Everybody around the water cooler worked, discussed it. We were all in shock and horror. And you can Google it and find stories as recent as 60 Minutes doing a full story on it this August. And yet, and yet, when news of a child terrorist training compound in New Mexico broke, that were training 11 children on how to go into public schools and essentially recreate Columbine events, captured the news for a day or two, we kind of went back to business as usual. I'm wondering, Brigitte Gabriel, as shocking as this is, of children as young as four and five years old being taught how to shoot weapons and create terror and chaos, and all of it being done at the behest of three Wahhabi Muslims, that there was not more talk, not more outrage, not more. I mean, it's one thing to, to abuse your own kids, to train children to become murderers, some of these kids as young as four and five years old, and yet the media had virtually nothing to say about this. And the story, if I hadn't mentioned it, probably hasn't seen the front page of a newspaper in weeks. Why? Because it is centered around the Islamic faith. It includes Islamic rituals. Uh, this is how the father killed his own son. Remember the son that they found dead, the three years old? He killed his own son in a religious ritual. If someone doesn't give a care about their own flesh and blood, you think they're going to care about you? But there are, there are so many elements to this story, Craig. You add to that that the father, Siraj Ibn Wahaj, the guy, the head, the leader of the compound who was training these kids, is the son of a very prominent imam, Imam Siraj Wahaj, who is actually a co-conspirator in the first World Trade Center bombing of 1993. So you have that element to the story, and then you add to that that he had three women living with him, probably multiple wives. One of them has been in the country illegally for 20 years. So you have uh, all the things, all the elements that the media, the leftist media wants to hide and sweep under the carpet, never to see the light of day. 
the illegal immigration issue, the visa control issue, the Islamic issue, radical Islam and jihad issue, which of course jihad supposedly is to purify our hearts. Jihad is yoga to the soul. This is what the media has been telling you what jihad is. Yet this, this guy is teaching 10 young children to go and shoot up schools in the name of jihad, in the path of jihad. So these are all the elements involved, and that's exactly why the media swept the story under the carpet. You know, the irony is that in the days following 9-11, and I remember famously watching the scene of George Bush standing on a pile of rubble very near the World Trade Center and saying in a matter of days, you know, uh, we've heard from you in a matter of days, they're going to hear from us and all of America. And it was certainly a, uh, a key moment. It was one of those presidency, uh, presidential defining moments in history. And then sadly, after that, while we did initially a good job at waging physical war, um, we never really ended up getting all the guys responsible until many, many years later. Others responsible we have yet to ever bring to justice, including one who helped to design the first round of attacks on the World Trade Center that many people have forgotten about now, that dated all the way back to 1993. And yet, ironically, even as we might claim that we won the war in dealing with Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden is dead, uh, Muammar Gaddafi is dead, on and on the list goes, the war for hearts and minds, we have been steadying, losing, and in fact, there's probably not a mark on the calendar since 9-11 that we saw any progress in winning that war, have we? Uh, No, we have not. As a matter of fact, I have a whole chapter in my book, Rise, titled The Cost of Terror, and it talks about how much we have spent, despite $7.5 billion annual budget uh, that we have spent just on the TSA alone. I mean, the cost of the war is in the trillions, Greg, in the trillions. And people throw this money around and think, you know, this does not affect me. It does affect you, because we are fighting a losing battle. But here's where we went wrong, and you gave the example of President George Bush, and that's the perfect example. There the reason why we have lost this war on terrorism until President Donald Trump got elected, which we are seeing what he's doing to ISIS right now, but the reason why we lost it for 70 years we were fighting is because we were not able to identify what we were fighting. President George Bush went out and said, we're going to attack the terrorists and we're going to get them, but in order for us to do that, we're going to engage our wonderful Muslim community in the United States because of of course, they are Americans, and they're going to help us out. It was President Bush that launched the Muslim Initiative Program, where he started bringing Muslims and hiring them into sensitive positions in the government. It was President Bush that brought Muslim employees to work at the FBI and staffing the FBI with Muslim employees that when they presented when they were given the evidence supposedly to translate of documents we were found, we had found they literally destroyed the evidence because they thought, oh, it's irrelevant religious material. They didn't even look at it. So what we did is basically because of our own deception and our own naivete in how to look at this problem, we sabotaged ourselves by not realizing we are dealing with a radical ideology. 
President Bush, before he opened his mouth and said Islam is a religion of peace, he should have made a little bit more of research before he made that statement and started realizing what ideology that drove al-Qaeda to do what they are doing. So today, when you look at all the money we spent on the war on terror, the Middle East is still in shambles, the Islamic street hates us, more today and considered us an enemy more than they did back in, in on 9-11-2001. And it wasn't until President Trump got elected and started talking about defeating radical Islamic terrorism. And finally, he unleashed the generals to do what the generals do best. Go and kill your enemy. A military is there, and we spend money training a military not to win hearts and minds. We train military to go kill our enemies, whip them into shape, and let them know, now that we have defeated you, now come to the negotiating table and let's start talking how you're going to behave yourself. Otherwise, we will have another repeat performance. Um, but, you know, this is where we are as a nation, and it takes moral clarity. It takes people with courage who are willing to stand up on the podium and say what needs to be said, and that's exactly what President Donald Trump did, and something that neither Obama nor Bush before him were able to do. You know, the absolute utter irony behind all of this, if we think about the last major period in modern history when we fed a pretty invincible foe, and in this particular example, two simultaneously in dealing with our then enemies of Germany and Japan, we did exactly what Brigitte suggests. We beat them into submission. We demanded complete, unconditional surrender by both parties. And then once having beaten them into surrender, we then helped rebuild those nations and helped those nations refocus their priorities and their values, and in doing so, help to create two of the strongest democracies on planet Earth today, and arguably, these two of our worst enemies in our history have turned out to become two of our best allies in all of our history, um, say perhaps that of, of England, which was an enemy of ours at one time as well. The major difference here is that in the case of the way terrorism has been dealt with traditionally in this country, at least post 9-11, has been to on one hand stand up for the terrorists, but all the while apologizing for them at the same time. And this is where the major mistake has been made. This book is a call to reconsider not only where we're at in our nation in terms of the erosion of Judeo-Christian values and the rise of of paganism and humanistic ideals, but also a call to remember history and to begin addressing this danger of fringe extremism that has gone mainstream. Because if we fail to get it right this time, there may not be a going back. There may not be a second time. This is not the phony war of 1939 and 1940. This is a real war. And if we don't get serious about it, we're going to run the risk of losing it, sadly, largely, not because of necessarily the threat of the enemy from without, but rather the enemy from within. Rise in Defense of Judeo-Christian Values and Freedom, the book, again, newly published by Frontline Press, 
and uh, you'll get it at all the usual suspects, Amazon.com, as well as through Brigitte's website, actforamerica.org. That's act, F-O-R, for America. Org. And our thanks to best-selling author, the chairman of Act for America, Brigitte Gabriel, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. 5.32, let's get you caught up on traffic. See what's going on out there. Michael Bennett's got the latest. Hey, Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If we did a casual survey here, I think we could all pretty, uh, within friendly terms, agree that climate change has a long list of supporters. It also has a fairly long list of detractors. There are scientists who stand squarely behind it and say that it is 110% accurate. Other scientists who say they're not so sure about all of this. And others still that say, no, it's a bunch of hogwash, that the cycles of warming and cooling are natural part of uh, the Earth cycles, and we're making a whole bunch to do about nothing. That said, there's also another point that we might argue a bit more over, but in the end probably come to the conclusion that no matter how you chop it, no matter which side you come down on this, you agree that climate change can be big business. And whenever it's business and money involved, that usually sets up sides, and it usually also creates an environment where people try to take advantage. Well, if that be the case when it relates to climate change, then my next guest has almost unearthed something along the lines of the Pentagon Papers, <laughs> uh, the, the Pentagon Papers version of climate change in relationship to what's been going on with a number of leading Democratic AGs across the country, state AGs, and their cozy association with environmental activists almost uh, acting as if they were muscle on behalf of these activists. It is a result of a two-and-a-half, nearly three-year-long intensive project. And joining me is the author of uh, this effort to take the lid off the billion-dollar-a-year climate change industry and their efforts to weaponize state attorneys generals. We're joined by Christopher Horner. He is Senior Fellow with the Competitive Enterprise Institute, Chris, thanks so much for being with us today. Year and a half, two and a half years, and I understand that uh, some of this came from Freedom of Information Act. A lot of it you had to literally fight and go to court for. We did. Thank you, Craig. Um, when the president, uh, actually it was when there was a press conference, with this, this travail began when Al Gore flew to Manhattan for a press conference with nearly 20 attorneys general to announce a sort of whatever means necessary campaign to use law enforcement to impose this agenda that, as you pointed out, climate changes. In fact, it always has, it always will. Um, but to, to impose a political and ideological agenda in the name of catastrophic man-made global warming or climate change now. Um, I started sending open records requests through various groups I work with, and ultimately we litigated several of them because the attorneys general uh, whose records we wanted, they belonged to the public after all, didn't want the public to see them. And with the report we issued yesterday, we have a pretty good idea why. Um, this is a, a, an or, a very well orchestrated and now we know very well funded, privately funded law enforcement effort to impose a failed political agenda using the courts. Very disturbing. Wow. And, you know, this is kind of like having your own uh, 
hired guns. I used the uh, example in my introductory remarks earlier this evening by saying it's it's almost the equivalent of having the chief of police, you know, on auto dial and uh, kind of having him in your back pocket. So if you have a neighbor up the street that you don't like, you just call the chief of police and say, you know what, I don't like this guy. He didn't mow his lawn often enough. Uh, the car makes too much noise running the engine in the morning before he goes to work. So can you run out, run him out of town for me? I mean, isn't that sort of the moral equivalent of what's going on here? It is. In fact, they very helpfully put it in a contract, and they laid out, that is, the, the donor. This is a, there's a model, and you'll be hearing more about it in the next couple of weeks. There's a model we've unearthed at several levels of governance, attorneys general, just the most disturbing, not the most well-funded, by the way. But it involves donors using nonprofit organizations as pass-throughs to hire staff for elected officers whose legislatures won't give them this staff but they think they need more, and the donors think they need more, as long as the elected officials, in this case, attorneys general, agree to use the staff a certain way. So the police chief, in your hypothetical, will be on call, but he'll also have a deputy who you pay because you want to keep a certain kind of piece as you see it in your neighborhood against a certain kind of people who you don't like, and you agree with the contract, I'll provide you this extra deputy if you promise to use him against these kinds of people. It's Remarkable! It is an unprecedented arrangement, as you might imagine. You and I have never heard of anything like this because we, I've, I've been looking, and when we don't believe it's ever transpired, at least in the what I'll call modern, let's say post-Watergate era. Who knows what sort of corruption occurred before? But this is something that is not, you know, the normal is well, everybody does it. Great, name them and define it. I'll wait. And well, they would just be doing this anyway. That's not true. These contracts quite clearly state, we'll give you these privately funded prosecutors if you promise to use them this way, and we have the applications of the attorneys general who sought these privately funded investigators and prosecutors, and they laid out, some more brazenly than others, unless you give me this bag of money and these lawyers, I won't be doing this work. But if you do, well, and they laid out the work. It's This is... Clearly, if, if this is happening in, in what, what we know as blue states generally, I live in a purple state. It's Our attorney general seems to have stopped just short of doing it. He did agree to do it. But in these states, I don't know if the legislatures will engage in oversight, but they certainly should. This, and if not on this, then what are you going to look into? Well, and what's troubling is, as you point out, these so-called nonprofit pass-through organizations uh, are allowing their supporters to not only have the advantage of the tax write-off, but essentially manipulate things, use the attorney general's office as essentially, uh, you know, their their muscle, and at the end of the day, I would suspect almost always somehow financially in the end benefiting from all of this. I mean, I've got to wonder, is, for example, the former New York mayor that philanthropic, that concerned about climate change, that he would create a uh, an entire nonprofit organization to help support all of this? Or are certain municipalities, certain industries, um, certain companies specifically being targeted because their demisal may indeed have a positive impact on another organization these very same people have a bit of a vested interest in. It just seems to be a little bit too close for comfort here. 
Uh, that's true, and there are a couple of models. One is, let's say, the attorneys general. The New York attorney general, um, Eric Schneiderman at the time, uh, now disgraced Eric Schneiderman, has submitted a very detailed 13-page application for not one but two privately funded prosecutors, and in it he laid out, I'm developing theories to obtain settlements, to prosecute private industry for causing climate change, and obtain settlements. Now, history shows in the last few years, last decade, or nearly two, these are pursued by AGs, attorneys general, and the the results are distributed among political constituencies. So when you hear about investigations about into Big Business A for doing this or Big Business B for doing that, when these settlements occur, and most of these suits are designed to settle, not, not to win, the settlements are distributed among political constituencies. And I address some admissions of that in this report, and we see it at other levels. Uh, possibly the investors who are donating to governors, governors are doing this too, and they're hoping for what's called a green bank. States are getting in New York and Connecticut each a billion dollars, sort of a slush fund, to be plowed into businesses that, whose express claim is, I'm not economic, you need to give me taxpayer money. Well, what, what investors, board members are going to benefit from this? That's a very similar question that needs to be answered because it is an awful lot of generosity to use the power of the state in your service. Is it purely out of a curious view of charity or is it something else? Well, and I think the the answer to that is is quite clear. And at the end of the day, the, the use of essentially private interests um, to commandeer state police powers in order to target political opponents that eventually have a dilatorious impact on particular trades or businesses that will eventually cause their demise. And, you know, while, while you might campaign and saying we're going to help clean up the environment so that we can shut down these evil, nasty uh, coal power plants, and then it turns out that you've got vested interest in solar power and are a major stockholder of a solar power company, uh, you have to wonder where the dividing line between your care for the environment and your sense of being a altruistic citizen versus the greed that is motivated by shutting down the coal plant uh, be- begins to cross over. Well, that's why we have a law against just this kind of behavior at the federal level called the Anti-Deficiency Act. It's been there since around the Civil War. It's because if you allow private sources to come in and use to fund certain government uses, using, using power of the state in a way they desire, it, it obviously is inherently corrupt. So is that a dumb law, or is it there for a reason? And if it's there for a reason, why don't those reasons apply at the state level? Well, and you've undercovered this particular case in relationship to uh, the dem- largely Democratic state AGs and environmental activists, but you have to wonder, okay, how broad, how deep does this go? How many layers, like the proverbial onion, do we have to pull back here and find out other fashions, other industries, other individuals with a variety of, of interests, some for the greater good and others not so, that could potentially use this model, and, and before you know it, it's not government anymore, it's just racketeering. It's government for hire, to be sure, and and they are, obviously, every, every law you pass is, in the end, at the point of a gun, so this is, we should take it very seriously, and as we'll be revealing fairly soon, this goes far beyond attorneys general. Uh, there are privately funded mayoral staff on this issue. There are privately funded gubernatorial staff. The Wall Street Journal wrote about some of our findings in January. You're going to hear more about that 
very soon, they're putting staff in the governor's offices. They're actually donor-funded staff, and they're placed in the office as staff. The governor contracts out to the nonprofit as the vendor, believe it or not. And then they also have this outside network where they're staffing up governors. Donors will hire staff for governors through a nonprofit and AGs, and they will house them in a nonprofit, which takes up to 24% for its trouble, plus having its staff time pay for it. It's, it's, it's a remarkable racket, and like you suggested, it does. It is, it is interwoven now, it turns out. This is a very accepted model, at least on that side of the aisle, and I've yet to find it anywhere else, but if it occurs anywhere, it's wrong. Well, and and it it's if we thought there were aspects of lobbyists or you know ex legislative members becoming lobbyists and going back to their friends and colleagues and doing the bidding of special interest groups, if if we think that is troubling and threatening to our form of government. Imagine now having them literally planted inside of a specific office. Oh, no, this is not a taxpayer expense. This is being paid for by XYZ organization. They're nonpartisan. They're just doing this. They're good guys. Yeah, people are writing checks, and they don't want anything in return. Sure. And I've got some beachfront property with an ocean view available for you along the coast of Reno. Just call me, and I'll give you the property address. Amazing and amazingly frightening. You're going to hear more about this, and we're going to ask Christopher Horner to come back when he is ready to let the next shoe drop. Meanwhile, more information on the Competitive Enterprise Institute's work at CEI.org. That's CEI.org. Our thanks to Senior Fellow for the Competitive Enterprise Institute, Christopher Horner, for being with us. Great investigative work, Christopher, and we appreciate your time and your efforts. All right. 549, let's get caught up traffic-wise. What's going on out there, Michael Bennett? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We are reminded that prayer is the key and faith unlocks the door from that wonderful hymn of the 1970s, wasn't it? Um, Trying to think who sang that. I can picture him right now. Roger, it'll come to me. It's a Sign of old age. Roger something or other. Prayer is the key to heaven. Sometimes you get a little overwhelmed, though, especially if you have a reputation for being a bit of a prayer warrior and you enjoy communing with God. And yet, boy, how do you do it? And I don't mean how do you pray. What I mean is how can you have a sense? When you say to somebody, for example, I'll be praying for you, are you good on the follow-through? Are you able to keep track of the execution on that? I know I I have to make a list. If I don't make a list, inevitably, and I try to do it strictly from top of mind, uh, you run into somebody and they say, gee, uh, my son-in-law is dealing with cancer. Oh, I'll be sure and pray. I'll add them to my prayer list. And then a day or two goes by and you forget about it. And then six weeks later, you run into them somewhere at the grocery store and they say, gee, my son-in-law is doing much better. Thank you for praying. And you go, oh, my goodness, I had completely forgotten. Sometimes it can be overwhelming. And yet is there a practical way in which you can pray for friends, family, community? Well, my next guest says absolutely yes. Simply learn to pray A to Z, a practical guide to pray for your community. Amelia Rhodes joins us. And Amelia, what a brilliant book. Uh, When I first saw this come across my desk, I thought, oh, another book on how to pray. Well, there's plenty of those out there. But then I started thumbing through and went, oh, wait a minute. This is a whole new idea. 
Thank you. Yeah, that um, that's kind of how I felt. We don't need another book on how to pray. We need something that will actually help us to pray, because I'm, much like you described, that has been my struggle, too, saying I would pray for people, and then weeks later realizing, wow, I only prayed once, maybe twice, and just feeling this conviction that it needed to follow through and be faithful long term. And and as we talk about uh, lending the sense of of organization, I, I know some people might shudder a little bit and think, "Oh my goodness, I have to get an Excel, Excel spreadsheet going now. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I got to go buy a laptop so I have it Ooh. handy." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I know that I need simple things that help me, and that's how Pray A to Z started for me, was just out of my own prayer life, feeling very overwhelmed and convicted of, you know, running into people later and remembering, oh, I, I said I was going to pray long term, and uh, so I just came up with this very simple way, and it started out, you know, note cards, three by five cards, and it grew into a book. I never would have dreamt I would write a book on prayer because I felt like I was the least qualified person to do that. <laughs> As you've approached this, you're, you're taking it very um, topical in a sense. And I guess it's true that people tend to, at least my life experiences, tend to fit in, you know, not, not, not neat, clean pigeonholes, but it tends to be, for example, there's a couple of people on my prayer list right now that are dealing with cancer. Mm-hmm. So they're in the cancer category. Mm-hmm. And then it seems perennially there is somebody that I know that's got a son or a daughter or a grandson or a grandchild that's kind of wandered away from the Lord and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, maybe they've had a run-in with the law and things of that sort. So it seems as if um, the older we get, the health concerns, of course, tend to pile up. But it seems as if there are certain perennial categories that that tend to be kind of repetitive. The names may change, but the needs are kind of the same. Does that make sense? It does, yeah, and that's how it started for me. It was after taking several phone calls and emails from friends all in one day, big, heavy requests, adoptions that weren't going well, cancer diagnosis, um, a marriage that was falling apart, when I realized, you know, this is heavy and overwhelming, and I asked God to help me be more faithful in my prayer life, and that was what I, the conclusion I came to, that so many people are struggling with the same types of things. What if I were to pray by category and maybe take one or two per day? And so that's how A became adoptions, and B became bullying, and then we expanded doing several topics per letter. And I found it, um, I kept the topics broad enough so that, yes, under cancer, you will remember your friends, their family members, their caregivers, their hospital staff caring for them, really just very broadly covering all of those struggling with the various topics. And uh, let's see, 26 letters in the alphabet that kind of takes us through um, A to Z literally over the course of a month. Right. Right. And I ended up starting with one topic per letter, and then I ended up expanding it to five. So there are 150 different prayers and topics in the book, and um, two for each letter are actually prayers of praise. Yeah, I noticed that. And and was it intentional that you included that in there? Because, you know, so often we think about, uh, you know, the Scripture talks about going and bringing to the Lord our prayers and supplications, and it tends to usually be a laundry list of Heavenly Father, I need, right. so-and-so needs, the other one needs, and it's, it's typically uh, all very one-way communication in that sense. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we could almost, uh, if, if, if heaven had an email address, we would, we would do that and just say, you know, dear God, here's my list. Uh, get right. back to me when it, when you've answered all those requests. Right. You're, you're, you're suggesting a dynamic here that that really helps to not only give us a better sense of discipline about our prayer, but also helps to enrich our relationship with God. Absolutely, because as I prayed, you know, and I was 
we're looking at, you know, very heavy topics that we're all facing in our communities. We've mentioned cancer, but then, like, praying for the homeless and those who are serving them, um, zero prejudice, uh, our lawmakers, all of those big things happening in our communities. It can be very heavy, and I found myself, even in prayer, just feeling just this darkness and feeling overwhelmed. But when I began to praise God and recognizing who it is that I'm talking to, it really lightens the load because we remember that every need we have is met in who He is. And it was very exciting as I wrote it. So, for example, like C was cancer and caregivers, and then praising God that He's the comforter. How very often, you know, these prayers of praise match up with the needs and recognizing, yes, we have these hard and heavy things, but remember, He's Almighty, He's the Comforter, He's our Helper. There's also another dynamic to this that fascinates me, and I, and I think it's one, you know, a, a, some people that kind of approach prayer casually uh, do it, they know they need to do it, they have a sense that it moves the hand of God, so they're obedient in that fashion, but there's lacking any sense of organization. It's easy to rack up the list of all the prayer needs mm-hmm. and then forget about the times and they are frequent when God answers prayer. And I'm wondering if in this fashion, in in giving a greater sense of organization to uh, how you pray and remembering to, to remember all the needs that are brought forward, is it also a tool in helping you keep track of, wow, when God answers prayer, let's make note of that too and right. also give thanks to the Lord in acknowledging the fact that here's another case where he's answered prayer. Absolutely. With with each topic, I started out with a scripture because I, I really believe in starting with God's Word. What does God say about this topic and this particular issue? And then in the prayer prompt, just a couple sentences, you know, remembering all of the people who are going through this. And then many times I prompted people, you know, think about the times where God has moved in your life in this area and give thanks for that. And then through the prayers, um, to not only think about the current situations, but situations in past, praising God for his faithfulness and how he has worked in these areas. And I think a lot of that helps to to not only give us a greater sense of discipline when it comes to our prayer, but also does a phenomenal job in strengthening our relationship and our faith. Right, and that is my hope through all of this. That, you know, often if we don't know where to go or we feel like we're just you know in a rut with the same things over and over, that it will it will expand our love for God and our love for our community, and that we will begin to experience this deepening relationship with Him as we begin to talk to Him intentionally and purposely, you know, every day. I, funny, I was just looking at the calendar here and and made note of the fact that it's December the 14th. Exactly a year ago today, I was flat on my back in a hospital being treated for cancer Mm. and had suffered something called an ileus. I won't describe it. It's a blockage. Um, as, As I told my nurse... Uh, it'll be about three hours from now, exactly a year ago. Uh, you need to either give me some pain medication or bring me a gun. Mm. Horrifically painful experience. Right. And as we're talking, and I'm thinking back exactly a calendar year later at the repeated answers to prayer, including on the day of the most painful day of my hospitalization, exactly a year ago today, and I think how grateful I am to serve a God who not only hears prayer, but who answers prayer, mm. and to be mindful and reminded 
of his faithfulness. And I think we do a good job in bringing those prayers and supplications to the Lord, I think, uh, quite often. But um, the discipline to keep track of all the times that he answers prayer, the miraculous fashion in which he is there with us. Sometimes we kind of give mental assent to that. But I think actually writing it down and saying, well, we prayed for Uncle Charlie starting on this date and X number of days, weeks, whatever later, here's the date when God answered the prayer. This can be a wonderful resource, too. The book is simply called Pray A to Z, A Practical Guide to Pray for Your Community. That's Pray A to Z, and uh, newly published by a Worthy Inspired. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, also through the uh, usual suspects like Amazon.com. Uh, it's a good read and uh, gives you some great tips Our thanks to Amelia Rhodes, author of Pray A to Z, a practical guide to pray for your community. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.